Illinois is selling bonds after its first ratings increase in decades. The $130 million offering next week is the first of three issues planned over the next two months. And Cranes reporters Ali Maradi and A.D. Quigg join me to talk about the city's return to masking requirements amid an uptick in case counts, about vaccines, and about how local businesses and schools are faring. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Cranes Daily Gist for Monday, August 23rd. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Ali Maradi and A.D. Quigg. Both of you have done a great deal of reporting on the pandemic, the vaccine effort and masking requirements. And we saw changes go into effect Friday with a citywide indoor mask mandate. And we saw an announcement from the Biden administration about a third round booster vaccine available for all adults starting September 20th. So let's catch up on all of those things. I know that you both have done a ton of reporting on this. Um, A.D., why don't you start? Tell us what's the latest uh, citywide. So the latest citywide is everyone over the age of two, vaccinated, unvaccinated, public, private, uh, business, everywhere. If you're indoors, you have to wear a mask. That is a new requirement by the city that jumped up from a recommendation when the city's daily average case count rose above 400 per day, which the CDC considers high incidence. So far, that's all that is being required. There are no changes to social distancing or capacity inside businesses like restaurants. I'm, I'm sure some were freaking out that we might have to institute six feet of spaces between tables or 50% full, something like that. That is not the case, masks only, but that could change if the number rises above 800 cases a day. So as of Thursday, uh, the average daily case number was 460. It's been going up about 25% each week. Obviously the Delta variant is here. There are some worries that Lambda might start creeping into the conversation. So people are kind of on guard. And then with school back in session for the Archdiocese of Chicago in the past week and for Chicago public schools pretty soon, there is some concern too about spread inside schools. School kids and teachers and staff are all required to wear masks as well. It's a, an unnerving time, I guess is the best way to put it. We, we had such a nice sustained dip earlier this summer where we were all like, wow, the vaccine is here. It's working. Things were starting to feel back to normal. A lot of businesses were making return to office plans by Labor Day. And now even Cranes, which was kind of expecting folks back at Labor Day, is scooting that a little bit later just because we don't know where the pandemic will take us next. And and as more companies are joining the list of uh, those that are requiring vaccination as a condition of employment, I feel like every day we hear of a new company announcing something like that. What is your respective reporting revealed on that front? There were a few businesses that have come out and kind of instituted vaccine mandate. And I think as part of that, they were saying, well, we won't require masks because of this. So now with these new city regulations, they have to go back and kind of change their conversation with their employees or, you know, their patrons. But the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, a lot of these companies that are instituting vaccine mandates are having to 
you know, brace themselves for requests from workers who say their religious beliefs prevent them from getting vaccinated against COVID. And it's really murky waters for those businesses. I think we saw this very early on when the vaccine conversation really started earlier this year of what, what's going to happen? What are these companies going to do? And then now as Delta variant spiking, and we've really run up against a lot of vaccine hesitant folks and holdouts, it's become evident that you know, I've seen some calls saying very, just very starkly, if you issue a, ma- a vaccine mandate, you will save lives. So I think there are a lot of businesses that are kind of, you know, thinking about what their corporate responsibility is in the world during a public health crisis and that sort of thing. But with, you know, the legal mandates and not wanting to get sued over forcing someone to get vaccinated, which is obviously a big concern. My colleague uh, Stephanie has talked to a bunch of people that are kind of following this and thinking about this and Hospitals are really the best equipped to deal with it because they already have a flu shot mandate in a lot of places. And it's just very nuanced, you know, because it's not just about if you practice a certain religion and what has this religion said about the vaccine, because many religions, you know, have said, please do get the vaccine for whatever reason that they've given. But it, it's, it comes down to an individual's interpretation of the religion, even an interpretation of a single Bible verse, for example, and then having to figure out how that person lives their lives and if they abide kind of by those standards, which is really interesting. You also report so much on the restaurant industry. And earlier in the pandemic, you and I had talked a little bit about a lot of restaurant operators that were kind of worried about how they would enforce all of this and how they would have the staff to check vaccination cards and things like that. What have you been hearing from restaurant operators right now? So the staffing issue is still a whole huge thing. A lot of folks have said that it hasn't really gotten any better since we all kind of started going back out and the world started reopening back in the spring. So that's still an issue. Some people are worried about, you know, the validity of these vaccine cards because we've heard so many stories about fake ones getting sold online. You know, at the same time, however, there are restaurants out there that want to institute these vaccine mandates, either among their staff or among patrons. Um, you know, breweries, restaurants, that sort of thing. They are checking at the door. You know, I went to a brewery just the other day. It was my first experience going to um, an establishment that was checking, and um, it was very easy. We just, I had, I knew, you know, that they had been requiring that, so I had a picture of my vaccine card on my phone. They just checked it at the same time they checked my ID. But, you know, I did see other patrons that came that didn't know that requirement was in place and were hung up at the door trying to figure out what to do. So it is interesting. We've seen just, you know, after this mask mandate that um, came out, we've seen some people come out and say that, you know, this is just putting the burden back on our already strained workers. So that's something that I think a lot of these businesses will be contending with. I've also been talking, you know, just to restaurant operators about what they're doing for their workers. And I'm not talking about raising wages and benefits to try to get them to apply and come work for them and to have the retention, but just what are they doing for their mental well-being um, while they're basically you know, being worked into the ground and how, how are they adjusting their hours to deal with that? So um, those are all issues that are still in contention for sure. AD, so you've written so much about CPS and the teachers union. As school is coming back in session, how is all of this landing there? It has been rough. It's, it's a, basically a continuation of a rough relationship between CPS and the union, dating back to the teacher strike. There is a lot of disagreement over uh, conditions for quarantine, uh, conditions for closing down an entire school. There's uh, an outbreak considered. Obviously, had a lot of issues with 
the facilities at CPS. Even before COVID, there were complaints about the cleanliness of bathrooms, how sanitary places were, full-time staff dedicated to cleaning. So CPS has committed to hiring janitors, not contractors, with janitorial contracts, replacing a bunch of ventilation at a bunch of schools. There's also disagreement over what teachers can exactly bargain over. They are continuing to meet as we get closer and closer to the start of school. Dr. Arwady was asked this week, you know, as cases are going up, does this threaten inviting students back to school in person? She said, absolutely not. A huge priority for the district is getting students back in school in person. I'm going to have a story coming out in the next couple of weeks about what the last year meant for learning loss. And a lot of what I heard, not only from teachers and principals, but also parents and students, was how difficult last year was socially, emotionally for kids and the importance of bringing kids back in person to be around other students, to be around teachers, and to kind of build back up their confidence and their attention so they can kind of start the school year off, right, and recover from the social-emotional learning loss of last year, but also like basic standardized testing and skills that you need for your grade level. So it's going to be very important to the district to not have any further doubt about the safety of opening schools and parents feeling good about sending their school kids back to school, not only for like instruction, but for the fate of CPS, who has been seeing declining enrollment for several years. And I actually spoke for the story I'm working on about learning loss. I spoke to some parents who are like, I have friends who are leaving the district entirely just because they were so frustrated with all the upheaval with the union and what seemed like a stop and start nature of the last school year where it was like, a switch to remote. We had some classrooms that had to close. Just too much upheaval for my family to handle. We will check in on all these topics again soon. But while I have you both, I want to talk about other stories that you're working on right now. Allie, let's start with you. So um, I've got a story about a craft beer incubator in Logan Square called Pilot Project, which is pretty interesting. You know, they have been around for two years on Milwaukee, sort of between Western and California. And They vet people that want to open breweries and then they bring them in and help brew their beer, help them market it, package it, distribute it, and then deliver them all the sales data so they can figure out what's working and what's not working. And it's a really interesting model. You know, there are a few other breweries around the country that have tried to do this in the past, but in this moment of the craft beer industry and what's going on there, that industry was completely pummeled by the pandemic. A lot of craft breweries make most of their money by selling kegs to bars and restaurants or serving in their own tap room because canning beer is much more expensive. Especially in the last year, the price of aluminum cans has gone up because there are shortages left and right throughout the pandemic because so many people had to start canning their products. I've been told that, interestingly, a lot of restaurants and bars are still buying cans over kegs because they don't want to weather another shutdown and have to dump beer that was unused down the drain again. So that's going on. But then at the same time, there are all these consumer tastes that are constantly changing. Because as we've talked about many, many times, the pandemic did a lot of interesting things to consumer behavior. So now breweries are having to figure out, you know, what to do with that. What do consumers want? How do we keep up with that? Hard kombucha, hard seltzer, canned cocktails, all of those things are stealing market share and stealing shelf space from craft breweries. So It's really hard to launch a new brewery right now. And even before the pandemic, growth among the industry was slumping a little bit. So 
it could be a really great time for a place like Pilot Project to kind of expand their model, which is something that they are wanting to do. And that's sort of the point of the story. You know, they're reducing barriers of entry. The craft beer industry is very white and very male. And part of that is because all the other demographics and genders just don't have the same, you know, access to capital. And it's pretty expensive, you know, it can be over a million dollars, multi-million dollar investment to start a new brewery. So reducing the barriers of entry there. I found it pretty interesting. That is interesting. I don't know why this continues to surprise me and 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 be so compelling. And yet every single story is a pandemic story. Oh, yeah. Everything. Absolutely every story. Even beer is a pandemic story. Like everybody else, I, there was a minute there throughout the summer where I was thinking that, you know, the pandemic didn't color every story as deeply as it once did, but it's just right back to it. Yeah. I mean, even the plant story that we talked about that had, I mean, people were at home, people got plants. It was a thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like consumer habits are forever going to be changed. It's like I took the architecture river cruise for the first time last night in Chicago, played tourists for a minute there. And the guide was talking about the Willis Tower and how after 9-11, people didn't want to work in there and how that kind of like changed the whole scope. Like that traces back to why we call it the Willis Tower instead of the Sears Tower and all this stuff. And it made me think of the pandemic because it's going to be one of those things where for decades we're going to be like, oh, because the pandemic triggered this change in consumer behavior, this is what we're still seeing. We'll be drinking hard seltzer forever. White claw for life. Exactly. <laughs> right. Definitely. Well, and, and AD, you're working on something about the film industry, and that also has been quite a bit touched by the pandemic. Yeah, that's a COVID story, too. Um, so Allie wrote about this back in March, how... The industry was about to have like an amazing 2020 and then COVID shut everything down. And now that all of 2020, the film industry locally and in Illinois has been open for business, they're on track to have a record year. And it's really fueled by a TV series. So through June, the city has cleared 938 filming permits. That's an 80% of those are for television series in 2021. In 2019, that number was 734. So the folks in the Chicago Film Office and the Illinois Film Office are like, it's looking really good. The thing that changed the national view, I think, of how Chicago was handling COVID restrictions was when Fargo, this TV series, mm-hmm. came back to film in Chicago and Chicago proved like we could do this safely and you can get your stuff done. It kind of signaled to the rest of the industry that like Chicago is a good place to do business. Um, Canada was slightly more restrictive than the U.S. in terms of travel. So um, if you were a star based in New York or L.A., you were forced to quarantine for two weeks if you were coming back to Canada. And that screws up a lot of stuff in the film industry. So Chicago had less restrictive, but still with what both offices say were a very safe uh, filming procedure. They were like, if we could have COVID testing protocols and quarantine protocols and close contact protocols as strict as the film industry had, we would have like beaten COVID in the city. So a few of the series here, of course, all the Dick Wolf shows, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire is debuting its 10th season somehow. Wow. Next month. It's been here for that long. I kind of can't believe it. There's a new Apple TV show, Ripple Effects, uh, that started filming at Bucktown earlier this month. There's The Shy on Showtime, Work in Progress on Showtime, which is also written here. Power Book on Stars, 61st Street on AMC. HBO just finished wrapping a show called Somebody Somewhere. Amazon's Paper Girls was here. There's a couple more coming. A Netflix project with David Fincher called The Killer and a Sam Raimi movie that is a thriller. There's a lot happening. And in part, it's because of streaming services. The Illinois Film Office was like, in 2013, there were 250 
episodic shows. Now there's 500 just because streaming has taken off so insanely. And Chicago is well positioned to capitalize on it. The other exciting slash interesting thing happening is Chicago is known for having like one major studio here, CitiSpace in North Longdale. But by the end of 2022, there should be two more studio spaces opening up, one in Avondale at the Fields and the Regal Mile Studios in South Shore. And the city's hoping this will also be like such economic development, like Ali was talking about the craft brew industry being overwhelmingly white and male. They're really hoping that the film industry in Chicago will be a lot more diverse. Interesting. Well, we will talk more about that for sure. All right. Well, now is the time where we pick the three things not on your beat that had your attention recently. I'll name some big ones that perhaps are on your list too. Obviously, a lot of attention on Afghanistan and Haiti right now. But also, I thought the World Health Organization response to the Biden announcement about the third round booster vaccine was very interesting, just kind of as a as a counterpoint to, to the White House. And of course, they fired back and said, no, we don't have to choose between the U.S. and everybody and the rest of the world. But it was, uh, I think it just sparked some interesting conversation that was actually nuanced for a change on social media, which I don't feel like I had seen in maybe a year and a half. Very early on, I feel like we had quite a few talks about the ethics of vaccine distribution, but now that the booster shot is here, it's like, how how do cities and states and nations balance um, helping immunocompromised people with the booster shot versus focusing on still reaching the unvaccinated? So offering more protection to certain people or offering a base level of protection to unprotected people. It was an interesting point of consideration, but also it really did spark interesting conversation on Twitter, which is not a place that has thoughtful or nuanced conversation ever again. And I was like, oh, look at people saying, I mean, I saw more than one tweet going, huh, both of these are very good points. I was like, look at this. Conversation is happening. Okay. Seeing both sides. Well, yeah, I've always been so focused on like, what is Chicago doing? What is Chicago doing? And sometimes what is the state doing versus other states? But the global aspect of this has been at the, like the lowest bottom level of my consideration when I'm covering this stuff. But it's so important because we could be having mutations of COVID that could swamp us later on if we don't get vaccines around the world, um, this thing's just going to keep going and going. Yeah, indeed. All right. What stories are on your list? Uh, I don't know if you guys were paying close attention to the race to succeed Alex Trebek on Jeopardy. Yes. So the ringer wrote this uh, amazing, discouraging story about this new host, Mike Richards, who is an executive producer on the show and also on The Price is Right. And, um, it was an inside look at how he was kind of both leading the process, but also making himself into a contender for the slot and how that impacted other people who were trying out. I was rooting hard for LeVar Burton to host the show. He's like a lifelong fan, has been um, someone who has educated the public for a very long time. I was a reading Rainbow Kid and I'm a LeVar Burton Reads podcast listener now. And he had done so many thoughtful interviews about why he wanted this job and why he thought he would be good at it. And this article just briefly mentions in a litany of all the other reasons why this Richards guy is probably a bad fit talking about how LeVar Burton got screwed basically because he was only given uh, one day to host all of his episodes. Whereas other people got several days to kind of get warmed up and get used to it. And then his episodes aired the same time as the Olympics, which means he was competing against like a ratings juggernaut. So he got, he got, rolled and it's not fair and this Richards guy just strikes me as the antithesis of Alex Trebek who is all about intellectual curiosity and cultural acceptance and 
being a good human. Not that Alex Trebek is, was devoid of controversy, but like this Richards guy just ain't it. So that has been haunting me since that came out. That's on the ringer. Um, there's a lovely heartening story in Block Club about a single block in Portage Park that has become a sanctuary for rare butterflies. There's like one woman gardener who's just like preaching the gospel of like good flowering plants for bees and butterflies and how they've come back come back to the block and it's just like other neighbors being like oh I could do that too I love that just so lovely to read about block club always has these like great pollinator stories that are here's how you can do it too there was like a a firehouse that was that just randomly planted a bunch of milkweed and got a bunch of monarch butterflies they're also always on Monty and Rose the Montrose birds bird watch like one of many reasons I love block club is like hyper local stuff like that um and one more on cranes, um, an interesting look at Tina Chen and how she will be impacted by uh, the blow up at Times Up and the Andrew Cuomo case. Um, I got to report just the tiniest bit on Tina Chen during Cook County Board President uh, Tony Preckwinkle's campaign and uh, Chen's endorsement amid uh, Preckwinkle's own handling of uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault in her administration dating back to 2016. So um, an interesting local angle on a huge national story and just one of many, I think, yet to be written about the shortcomings of the Me Too movement and people who were calling themselves champions and uh, perhaps staying too close to power to really hold people accountable at the same time. Indeed. Allie, what about you? So mine are all over the place, be forewarned. Um, the first one is this announcement. The Wall Street Journal had a story about Amazon opening department stores. Oh, yes. I saw that. Which, like, everything that's old is new again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reached out to them. Wait, say more. Because I heard about this, but I haven't. I don't Like, what are they going to look like? Are they going to be like Amazon Go? Or is it going to be like full Macy's in 1975? <laughs> Great question. So the Wall Street Journal had the story originally. And then we ran the Bloomberg Post. And... We know that um, the, the first are expected to be in Ohio and California and will be about 30,000 square feet. So that's a little bit smaller than the typical department store. And Amazon does not comment on rumors and speculation. That's the response I got when I reached out to them to ask if there were going to be any in Illinois. So it's just one of those things that uh, I think we'll be watching over the next few weeks because. Amazon has this ability to really move markets, you know, if they do something like if you remember when they announced with JP Morgan that they were going to do their own healthcare situation, it just kind of sent markets flailing. So if you were Macy's, wouldn't you just be like, wouldn't you just be screaming like you killed us? Any retailer. Oh, yeah. And they have that deal with Kohl's, too, where you can return your Amazon shipments in Kohl's. So the Kohl's CEO or an executive was basically like, this is like that partnership drives a bunch of foot traffic for us. It gets younger consumers in here. So I think that there's a lot of concern around that. Um, Obviously this was a scoop that the wall street journal had. Amazon was not ready to talk about it. So they couldn't do their damage control ahead of time, but I think it'll be interesting to see who's going to shop there. How are they going to get people to shop there? All the questions we ask about retailers every day. So that's the first one. The second one was this report the New York Times had. Um, It's about abortions during the pandemic and how they started distributing abortion medication, you know, via telehealth. And that was really one of the first times in America that you could do that, though they have done that in other countries. And just looking at like, why can't we do that? 
more often? How much easier would it be for access? What are the pros? What are the cons? Let's look at other countries that do this already. And then my third one is about Disney developing sentient robots. Oh, boy. What could go wrong? So this is fascinating. I have a trip to Disney World planned in October. I was not a Disney World kid. We were a beach trip family when I was growing up, but my in-laws went almost every year. So I'm going with my niece and nephew who are eight and 10, um, and they will be giving me the tour because they have been so many times. But basically, this story was so fascinating. It was about how these robots, like Disney has had robots around since the 60s that like spin around and talk to you and stuff. But nowadays that kind of nostalgia does not cut it with kids they need like you know this is a tech tech generations are coming up and they need like stuff that will truly interact with you and truly be real and so this reporter went and to see this technology and met like a little Groot robot and immediately like went into it skeptically as any reporter would but I guess this robot, he was, I don't know what the reporter was expecting, but the robot like stepped out from behind a tree and was like, I'm Groot. And then like, <laughs> like he, uh, the reporter didn't respond immediately. And then Groot got sad. And the reporter was like, oh, don't be sad. And like, just instantly like started reacting to the robot. So Do you guys watch The Good Place? Yeah. Do you remember that thing about where like to kill Janet? Janet can show up and like beg you for her life. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And then and then as soon as you back away, she's like, "It's fine. I'm a robot. I don't actually have any feelings at all. I am programmed to tell you this. So you can yeah. go ahead and kill me." And then you like they would sneak closer to the the death button and she'd be like, "Oh my god, please don't." Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. It's like you can't help but react when you see those emotions. Yeah. Plus it's Groot. Like Everybody loves Groot. Everybody loves Groot. Like, what kind of yeah. heartless person is going to respond to Groot for crying out loud? I know. What is this going to do to the like the Hall of Presidents? Are we going to have like? I was just going to say the Hall of Presidents and the the haunted. What is the haunted ride? What is that called? Haunted Mansion. Haunted Mansion. Yes, those two. Like those those two are my. Yeah, job. and then there's like Pirates of the Caribbean. There's so many potential applications. Who knows? We covered a lot of ground today. Yes, we did. We will pick up many of these topics again very soon. Thank you both. Thanks. Coming up, big winners emerge after the state's final weed lottery. We'll talk about that and more right after this. When change is constant, stability matters. That's the promise of forever ownership. Irvine Company's unwavering commitment to providing dynamic workplace communities to meet your evolving business needs. From Class A-plus trophy buildings with marquee addresses to energizing amenities, Irvine Company's dedication to your success lasts a lifetime, now and forever. Start exploring at irvinecompanyoffice.com slash gist. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Illinois is returning to the $4 trillion municipal bond market after earning credit ratings upgrades for the first time in more than two decades. The state, which still has the lowest credit designation in the country, plans to sell $130 million in junior obligation tax-exempt securities through a competitive auction for its Build Illinois program on August 24th. The bonds will help fund construction projects and are backed by state sales tax revenue. The offering scheduled for the week ahead is the first of three issues planned over the next 
next two months. According to a statement, the state plans to sell $210 million in taxable debt and $160 million tax-exempt refunding bonds through negotiated sales in mid-September. While S&P Global and Fitch have assigned triple B-plus ratings to the $130 million in sales tax bonds to be sold in the week ahead, the state's overall credit has gone up in the last six months. That's largely due to higher-than-projected revenue, billions more in federal aid, and some fiscal choices made by the state government. In the largest wave of enforcement cases since the epidemic of unruly airline passengers started this year, U.S. regulators hit 34 people with civil charges that could total more than half a million dollars in fines. The cases included passengers who made death threats and physically assaulted flight attendants and fellow passengers, that according to a news release from the FAA. The cases pushed the proposed fines announced by the FAA this year to more than $1 million, roughly doubling the total in one announcement. The FAA said that unruly passenger reports reached nearly 3,900 instances for the year to date. FAA Chief Steve Dixon told reporters earlier this summer that the agency generally sees 100 to 150 cases in a typical year. The largest proposed fine announced Thursday was a $45,000 fine against a passenger on a May 24th JetBlue flight from New York to Orlando. After refusing to get off the floor, the passenger allegedly grabbed a flight attendant's ankles and put his head up her skirt, the FAA said. He was placed in handcuffs and the plane was diverted. Deere & Company, the largest maker of agricultural machinery, raised its full-year fiscal outlook as surging crop prices boosted farmers' demand for new equipment. Deere said on Friday in a statement that net income for the year will be between $5.7 and $5.9 billion, up from a prior range of $5.3 to $5.7 billion. The company posted net sales from equipment operations of $10.4 billion in the three months ended August 1st that beat average estimates from analysts. Deere is seeing increased revenue revenues in Europe and Asia as well, where the company said agricultural and turf sales will be more than previously expected. The Moline-based company estimates that parts of its European business will be 10 to 15 percent higher, while sales of the same segment in Asia will be up what the company described as significantly higher. The company is benefiting from surging agricultural prices with crops including wheat, corn, soybeans and coffee entering multi-year highs on rising global demand. Deer's sales were boosted by higher machinery prices potentially countering rising raw material costs like steel. Deere didn't change its outlook for U.S. and Canadian markets, saying it still sees sales in the year rising about 25 percent for large agricultural equipment, with tractors and combines in South America up 20 percent. Illinois has picked the winners of the remaining 75 retail marijuana licenses in the last of three lotteries held to distribute 185 licenses to sell recreational marijuana in the state. 135 applicants that had perfect scores competed for the 75 licenses. Crane's John Pletz reported that the big winner was Botavi Wellness, which won six licenses in Thursday's lottery and seven overall. Illinois wound up the last of three lotteries to award 185 new licenses to sell recreational marijuana, but it's unlikely to be the end of a controversial process that started in January 2020. There's at least one pending lawsuit in which a judge has said the state must wait before formally awarding the new licenses. However, the plaintiffs in the case won licenses, and it's not clear they'll continue the suit. State officials, however, acknowledge that other lawsuits are likely. The results of Thursday's lottery fueled controversy that has dogged the process since the results of the initial scoring were announced nearly a year ago. 
Several companies, including one linked to an out-of-state dispensary operator, won multiple licenses Thursday, while other companies came up empty. KAPJG, led by Edie Moore, a longtime cannabis activist and executive director of the Chicago chapter of Normal, won four licenses in Thursday's lottery and six overall. World of Weed, Green and Bransford, and Blounce and Moore were also awarded licenses, and WAH Group gained access to the lottery through a lawsuit. Another plaintiff in the same suit, Hay, won a license in a previous lottery. But this lottery is not likely the end of the story. A Cook County judge has ordered the state not to formally issue licenses to lottery winners, though it's not clear whether the suit will proceed as planned. And that's Crane's Daily just for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to both of my guests today, A.D. Quigg and Ali Marathi. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.